This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hello, welcome to Triple R's Bite Into It with uh, Simon and Vanessa this evening. A big thank you to Monique Sabir for the last three hours and uh, a big warm welcome to her as she's just joined the grid with her first edition of Out on the Patio. That was gorgeous. Coming up tonight, we'll be speaking to Amanda Durham from Scale Investors. She's just making her way up the stairs past the little foyer intro, left into the corridor and down to the couches in the green room. We're painting a bit of a picture for you listeners out there. It's um, it's a beautiful thing in the studios here. Simon, are you well? I am. I'm very well. It's I, great to have you here. It is. It's good to be back on the show. It's been a little while since I've been in. Although I was thinking last time I was in, I was being very excited about some new retro gaming controllers that I had just purchased and had just arrived. And it has been a while since I've been in and I have still haven't got them to work. So there you go. It's There's the theme. That's very unlike you to yeah, not have jumped on that tech and had it working very quickly. Yeah. I, I was just expecting them to work, but... Um, they didn't, but you know that's that's the nature of tech. As we are, uh, as we all know, sometimes mm. things just don't work. They certainly do, and if things don't work quite a hundred percent smoothly tonight, it's because I'm super rusty at being behind the desk here. So if you could bear with me, it's a bit like putting, you know, no getting into an old car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in news this week, in um, what do we have going on in news this week? Let me uh, just read you something. I didn't know what to do or what to say. I couldn't stop shaking. I just wanted to get out of this haunted house and get out of this place. My fear seemed to be taking over my mind and I shut my eyes as the touch of his hands came up my throat. Now that was written by an AI and I that's think pretty that's impressive. Fairly impressive. The AI uh, is called Shelley. Uh, it was released ahead of Halloween, of course. It's named for Mary Shelley of Frankenstein fame. Oh, that's very sweet. It is. And uh, this particular AI has learned to uh, to write horror by reading Reddit, the art. Uh, slash no sleep subreddit to be precise where people like writing and sharing horror stories and uh but the interesting thing about this ai is that she's not just going out and writing it by herself she's collaborating on twitter um so that what I just read you was the beginning. Uh, she wrote the beginning of that story. So I, I haven't heard of very many AIs actually being collaborative with real people. Usually they just set to run over a data set and then, bam, they push out output. Yeah, remember that game that you may or may not have, maybe it's just because I was a massive nerd that I did this in high school, but used to do those uh, stories where you all sort of wrote a line at a time. This is Ah, I think we did those with pictures. Okay, so this is this is very similar. So she comes up with the beginning of a story. Posts it on Twitter, either as a single tweet or as a small thread. Then invites users to uh, continue the story uh, by replying to that tweet. And then they take it 
maybe a tweet or two in to continue the story just a little bit at a time. Nice. Uh, she doesn't respond, doesn't continue all the threads, just the most sort of interacted with ones. I think they're the most liked or the most retweeted. I'm not sure entirely how she decides. But then she continues picks up the story from where they left off. And so some of these stories are actually getting into being reasonably substantial little short stories. Um, They do have a lot of the time they're, I guess, they're a victim to the format. So people try and be a bit clever and completely twist the story in their tweets into something new. She seems to be able to pick it up and continue along. And some of the things, which I'm assuming are more AI glitches than really inventive uh, devices, but some of the things are actually quite... uh, Some of the things she writes are actually quite spooky, like really spooky, like, I saw a shadow in the shadows. Oh, and almost poetic. Yeah, I I I really like it. Now, whether this... There's obviously no real creativity there and I don't know how much she is just directly lifting from the work of the people who wrote those (laughs) 100,000 odd stories that she uh, learned, quote unquote, to to write from. But there you go. That that is a really interesting example of an AI being put to creative use, which we're seeing more and more of. It's a real credit to the the makers there that they were able to um, get, you know, a sense of, uh, well, I guess to make sense out of random pieces and random ideas that it's, that it's pulling. Very appropriate for Halloween. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> Look, uh, something else that was pretty cool this week was that a virtual reality experience has just won an Oscar for the first time. So um, the project was by Alejandro G. Inuratita. Oh, wait, I've just totally brutalised that. It's got one of those beautiful little ends. Um, Inuritu's project explores the experience of Mexican refugees. So it's it's not just, you know, a VR experience. It's also got a real social conscience. Um, and this director has already won uh, two Oscars before, so had a good record. But I guess it shows what can happen in the hands of someone really creative um, when they take on a new type of technology. In this case, they used the Oculus Rift to uh, create imagery that was really representational and also abstract to guide the viewers through an experience designed um, after the paths of global immigrants and refugees. So a really kind of virtuous use of, of this technology um, and you'd hope that the inventors of VR would be really gratified to see this sort of use, you know, really being able to put people in the place and uh, not just for entertainment but to help us, you know, understand each other better. It's, you know, very high arts going on there. There, in the world of politics and some of the and perhaps the more nitty-gritty of the big concerns that are playing around the world right now with the impact that the uh, so-called tech giants, um, I'm going to be controversial and call them major multinational media (laughs) organisations, but they probably wouldn't like that particular term. there have been uh, discussions, I guess. It's it's the first time uh, that the these tech giants such as Twitter and Google have 
and Facebook have sat and answered questions in an official setting. Uh, they testified before a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee uh, in the States in the last uh, in the last 24 hours, I think. Um, so the some of the coverage, in, in fact, a, a particular story on Wired uh, seems to have the analysis that not a lot was resolved. Uh, I don't know whether there was... It was sort of framed... The talks were framed as sort of like, let's look at solutions to this big problem of Russian meddling in the elections. Yeah. And it seems to have come out with more questions than answers. Well, I think that's right. And um, uh, Cathy... Uh uh, I'm forgetting her surname, O-something, who, O'Brien, Cathy O'Brien, I believe, who, who wrote Weapons of Math Destruction and had some recommendations to Facebook in particular about how they might handle this better, spoke about the lack of transparency there was for the average user in understanding where um, they might be influenced because anyone's experience is so different that you might not realise how ubiquitous um, getting served up Russian propaganda might be. And how can you tell propaganda from other things? You know, you might not click on it all. It might just have this little impact on your subconscious. Oh, I think I saw a headline about something. So there's a subtlety to that. Um, and apparently Facebook have taken on one of her recommendations, which is that they Facebook will be creating um, a ledger of all of the advertising, the political advertising that they take so that people can go through this and scrutinise it. Now, depending on how live and in the moment that type of capturing of the advertisements is will depend on how well we're able to scrutinise, you know, the fairness of it or the or the influence, the degree of influence, because you can actually cut down into all of that data and go, how many eyeballs did this reach? How many click-throughs did it get? How much time did people spend engaging with this content? How genuine do we think this content was? And we get into that fake news space, but you know, when they're looking at numbers of like 126 million Americans on Facebook were reached during and after the presidential election with 120 fake pages, um, with fake users interacting with content, commenting on content, it's it's everything you ever imagined, but more. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's incredibly, um, you know, far-reaching. Uh, yeah, I think the the... One of the senators, uh, what is it, uh, Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana had the question, uh, how could you not be aware that this was happening? You know, I mean, which I think is a, I mean, I understand that these these businesses are, uh, they're automated to within an inch of their lives, really. I mean, they're, they're basically big machines that the people who work for them are just, working to lubricate and keep oil and oiling and refining and it's been interesting to see how difficult it has been for facebook to insert humans into that process it seems every time they try it just becomes like just a massive fail almost every <laughs> single time so yeah it's it's going to be a, a real problem um and i still think that uh the the these companies, you know, personally, I think that these companies are going to have to uh, face up to the responsibilities of being a publisher sooner or later. But um, gosh, I hope so, Simon. It it it, it doesn't seem like that 
um, anybody in power is agreeing with me right now. <laughs> so we'll see how that how that runs. We've just welcomed into studio Amanda Durham. She is the co-CEO of Scale Investors. They're a female-focused angel investment network. She joins us tonight to discuss how Scale equips women to become successful investors and supports women entrepreneurs in early-stage businesses. Amanda, thanks for joining us this evening. Oh, Vanessa, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It is a pleasure. Um, so I first discovered you at a startup event where um, I was really interested in trying to find out who the women in the room were and what brought them there because we are traditionally underrepresented in the startup sector. I know people try very hard to get diversity up of all kinds. Um, what did uh, scale investors start out trying to do about diversity in the space? Our current founding chairman, Susan Oliver, she was in the States in uh, 2008 when, uh, a little bit later actually, uh, when a group in New York called Golden Seeds recognised that there was a lack of funding going to female entrepreneurs. And it's still the same. Not a lot has changed. Uh, less than 5% of early stage investment goes into female founders. So Golden Seeds, um, a group of women, uh, recognised this and said, hey, we're going to change this. And this year they announced that since 2008, they have invested $900 million into entrepreneurs in the States uh, in early stage investments. And the thesis is, if you empower women to invest in women, the statistics show that funds flow. So our thesis is the same and we've proved it works. You look at, uh, when you join Scale, you become a member and with that brings a deal flow. So you can actually get in touch with various sorts of early stage investments going and work out whether you want to invest in entertainment and media or lithium batteries or a, um, a day one response with which is a sanitation bag delivered into uh, disaster areas um, to help provide water, clean water. So you work out which area you want to be in. Um, it can be fintech, it can be an edutech, and we connect you with those entrepreneurs. But with that comes an education piece because I don't know about you, but I didn't understand early stage investing as we talk about it today. Exactly. So we often talk about startups here and we talk about different types of investment rounds. So startups get very excited about, you know, A rounds and B rounds <gasps> and and uh, they, it's very hard for people new to the scene, I think, to understand what is uh, venture capital, what are angel investors, what stage am I at, who should I be speaking to at this stage and where do I go to learn about it and grow? So how would you explain to um, someone who'd already started a small startup um, about where angel investing sits and particularly scale sits within that scheme of things? Well, angel, angel investing is the wild west part of it. It is scary. With the scariness comes the adventure, the excitement, the risk, all that. It's very compelling. And if you love new things like I do, the privilege of listening to 
bright people of all ages, they, their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, present the next best thing. Not all of them will succeed. In fact, we encourage our investors to go in it on a basis of a third will fail and fail they do, a third will puddle along and a third will succeed, we hope. <laughs> However, as far as angel, um, where angel investing sits, it's really after entrepreneurs have tapped their family and friends mm. on the shoulder so many times, bootstrapped, and after the bank of mum or bank of dad says, no more, please, no more, <laughs> they go to angel yes. and seed rounds. So we are pre-VC. So we are... At scale, we focus purely on female entrepreneurs. That doesn't mean there can't be um, males involved as founders, but there needs to be a high proportion of female, female share ownership, female endeavour, female CEO, some form of female. Where do you find the people willing to stump up the cash? Uh There are a lot of people who are really curious about this area because, um, and people in Sydney, the the angel profile in Sydney is very different from the angel profile in Melbourne. Really? Curiously enough. We have angels in both Sydney and Melbourne. We were established in Melbourne, so our cohort here is slightly larger. So it's not... Um, people who want 3 to 5% return from their, their um, superannuation fund. No, can't go there. <laughs> it's people who perhaps have um, established a business, ridden it, sold it out. They understand um, what it's like. They understand the road. They're willing to open up their um their calendar and their also, importantly, their address book and say, you need help here, you need help there, I can connect you with this. No, you don't need to talk to the CEO, you need to talk to the buying manager. You know, that's sort of practical. You need an engineer to help you with your design. Um, It's that sort of um, ability to help and mentor. Um, And also it's people who perhaps have made money um, through a CEO payout and they're looking at the next stage of their career at 50 and they're saying, yep, I get this, but I still want to be, I want to give back a bit and I want to make the world a better place. How do I connect in a safe environment? Because scale has a process which can, um, when you're involved in the excitement of it all, it can be a bit onerous for both the investors and the companies, but it's a really important part of establishing credibility and also trust between investors and entrepreneurs. Because as an entrepreneur, you want to be careful who you get into bed with. I was going to ask that because you've got um, you, you've got people who have their baby who they have, you know, nurtured this thing from inception. And as you say, uh, there's probably not a lot of people involved at this stage of the game. Does it take a lot of education to take people by the hand and say, look, you're going to need to accept some help here? It's not ju- we're not just going to give you the money without us being actively involved? This is where our process comes into play because the a- our investors, um, many of whom are women, believe it or not, we have scale males, and I know that's a bit corny. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, they're not the majority. The females are by far the majority. Um, the investors become very involved with assessing the deal. So you go through um, a, a, you go through a pitch, a screening of pitches, and then um, a number of people are successful at that and they go to investor presentations. In the background is our um, important investment manager who coaches the entrepreneurs in their pitches. And we don't want super glamorous, fabulous um, pitches. We want to understand your business. What's the model? What makes it tick? How are we going to put our trust in you to take our money and invest it to make something better? So there's that process and then after we've sort of circled the wagons, so to speak, we um, investors put up their hand and entrepreneurs look around and say, okay, we're in this game too and um, there is a, a, a deal memo written and a term sheet presented and it's really important that entrepreneurs understand what the term sheet means. It's important that they understand that we're in it for a while. It's not a three years and out. It's it's a relationship. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. So when you go to market, I imagine a lot of people just think, fantastic, we can get some money for gravy and we'll just get these rich people to invest in us and that's the plan. Um, but clearly your process shows that there's a lot of rigour involved to actually get to that point. Um, what sort of proportion of people make it through that process and are ready? Um, well, we start quite early on and in fact... Um, this year, because a number of our entrepreneurs have said, please establish um, a female founder network so we can plug into them. Because the best network for a female founder, uh, while it is investors and people with connections, it's also their own cohort because they can ask the questions. I mean, what did you do here? And when your investor wanted to do this, what the hell did you do there? So asking all those questions with... Um, when they're at the same age and stage. So we've established, we're establishing that. So that's a really big part of it. Um, and then a lot of it is all about understanding um, and having the ambition and the drive to get to the next step as an entrepreneur. I can imagine how that community helps. In fact, we spoke to Oscar McClellan from yeah, Startmate just yeah. recently and he was he was echoing your comments and talking about putting the right mentors in touch with teams at the right time and also startups who are just one step along in the journey. And we asked about the importance of that and uh, it seemed to be not so much that it was the context that was changing that changed the advice people would give, but just that you tend to forget how difficult the stages were when you've when you've already, you know, achieved what you needed to achieve to get to the next stage. It, is that something that you um, find very much that people have, have a short memory about uh, what it takes to get through um, and be a successful growing startup? I think a female founders whatever shape or color they are um, are so they're time poor um, they're so focused on the the grind of it and the joy of course there's joy however it's hellishly hard work and investors recognize that um, that and they and it's very lonely work too because they've really got a bootstrap in the early stages unless they've got a blank check um, which uh, I 
I don't know many people personally, but somebody out there may. And they work by themselves. They may have a co-founder. So I think the biggest challenge for entrepreneurs is to recognise when they need to grow. Mm. So they have to recognise that to grow, they've got to take on more people. And to your point before, Simon, that is really tough because this is their baby. But for investors to trust the entrepreneur with their money, there's a quid pro quo and, you know, a um, a piece, a large piece of a, an enormous giant-sized pizza is much more satisfying than a large piece of a small pizza. Yeah. And that's what it's all about. It's all about growing the mm, business. Mm. So we hear a lot in the startup community that people have to be really savvy and responsive to, you know, the market spans, um, the technology opportunities that they face, what what their differentiation is, you know, what's how strong is their business case, and that this can lead to requiring to pivot. Now, when you're a startup, theoretically, you're small and agile enough to take on these challenges when that happens. How does a pivot happen within the um, angel investor relationship uh, when you've signed on to invest in, in a particular thing? How does that conversation go when a founder says, I think we actually need to radically rethink this approach? There's total understanding. Mm. Um, and that comes from, uh, well, if, if people have been kept across um, the changes that happen. Because investors who um, are in this space totally understand that tech changes, totally understand that a marketplace um, network that has been developed has been superseded because technology has overtaken it. I mean, Facebook all of a sudden swamps the market with something. Hey, you've just marginalised a business um, that already has existed for a while. So we understand that. I think the biggest thing is with all this is communication. It's the old story. You have a relationship, you have to nurture it. And part of that is talking. To that end, we have um, quarterly reports from our portfolio companies. We've got a portfolio of 12 entrepreneurs, um, 12 portfolio companies. Um, We're sector agnostic and um, up until recently we've been geographic agnostic, but we're now focusing more and more on the um, Australian startup scene. Uh, And it's important uh, to check in quarterly with your investors and say, hey, simple, a simple one-pager. We're not trying to put extra work on entrepreneurs, but have there been any management changes? No. Has there been a board change? No. Have there been any... Uh, are you anticipating fundraising soon? Yes, you know, six months down the track. Those sorts of conversations are critical. So on the back of that, it, how much... Do you think when you're looking, when people are looking to invest on balance, and I know that this varies, but on balance, how much is the idea and how much is the person that they're investing in? Uh, Ideas come and go, don't they? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of, um, and you can read any amount of um, literature out there. I've just finished a fabulous book on how to turn 100,000 into 100 million. I think, whoa, wouldn't I like to be there? But I don't anticipate being part of that. Um, But uh, you you have to, um, yeah, you you basically have, have to, for an investor, you have to acknowledge what, um, 
what you're trying to achieve, have a look at how much money you have, and you need to quarantine a, a percentage. So you need to quarantine 5%, 2%, 10%, whatever you're comfortable with, and say, okay, I'm going to invest in a portfolio approach. Um, when you come to scale, the minimum investment, we do investments around a unit trust. So we set up a unit trust for each investment, unlike um, Oscar McClelland and Startmate and um, a lot of our uh, and VCs, we're not a fund. So mm. you can't say to us, okay, you're a 10 million fund, I want to raise X and um, and that's why we have our process with angels and they have an ability to chip in mm. according to their own personal decision. Um, but the minimum amount in an investment trust that we put around the investment so that the entrepreneurs only have one point of contact because they don't want to be bothered with a whole lot of investors. Mm. Investors are time-consuming. So one point of contact. The minimum amount is 25000 So you need to work out um, how much of your particular money you want to devote to this area. And it's a re- you need to be very rational, very cold-hearted, hearted about it and make a decision. That's that's the amount. When I've got to that amount, if there are no exits, I'm not investing anymore. Sounds great. So as well as helping out startups um, and entrepreneurs, you know, understand the journey that they're on and, and, and putting them, you know, in the context of a perspective of what they're trying to do, uh, you also have an investor education piece and, you know, because there are lots of women out there thinking, oh, I'd like to have a little bit of, you know, my discretionary play money go towards some female founders. Um, what do you do in that space in terms of um, attracting people to investing? When we... Um as I said in the beginning, when you join Scale, because mm-hmm. we're a subscription-based business, um, you get guaranteed deal flow plus you get the education piece and you get a network and it's amazing how fabulous the network is because I don't know about you, but as a woman who has always been very interested in business, in social situations, there are not a majority of my sort of people and so often you don't get um, an enormous opportunity to dig deep into businesses and you don't tease things out. So in this network, it gives you a wonderful opportunity to really quiz somebody around opportunities and how does that work? And, you know, why does the subscription model work? Anyway, back to the education piece. The Vic- <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm babbling on. The Victorian <laughs> government has kindly um, seen the merit of this because they want to raise, like us, they want to raise the um, knowledge of the whole early stage investment um framework and community. So we're going to um, take it online and put a number of our subjects online um, and through Launch Vic, they'll be, people will be able to access it and also through Scale. That's fantastic. Look, if you want to um, either approach scale from the entrepreneurial side or if you're interested in investing in female founders, do explore scaleinvestors.com.au. They have regular events where you can meet people, have really um, clever conversations and meet some canny investors. I think it'd be really worth your while. Amanda Durham, thank you so much for your time with us this evening. Look, uh, our co-host Laura Summers has just really outdone herself lately in 
getting out to conferences and nailing some interviews of people who couldn't otherwise make it to studio with us. So here at Bite Into It, big shout out to Laura Summers. She is with us virtually this evening with an interview. This is the second part of an interview that you heard the first half of last week, if you're lucky. It's with Josh Oost, who is um, from Let's Encrypt. And let's hear a bit more of the conversation with him now the server sending you that content and the client receiving those bytes. The thing I wanted to ask you about next was this change to Google Chrome, which happened in October. Um, They recently turned on a more strict form of security warning so that basically any traffic coming through them that's not an HTTPS site kind of turns up first time with a lot of red warnings and says, hey, are you comfortable going here to a non-encrypted web page? And you have to kind of do a couple clicks to continue. And it's it's quite sort of alarming looking. And certainly for people who aren't confident um, tech users that most likely bounce away at that stage, um, which I think is probably the intended behavior. Have you, have you sort of had a look at this yourself? And do you have any feelings about whether this is an improvement to try and push people to encrypt their web pages? Yeah, I think most browsers are moving this in this direction, and I think it's great. Mm-hmm. It's great for a couple of reasons. So we talked a little bit before about how the web is actually very complex. Every web page is connected to a bunch of different services, and there's all sorts of cookies in play. And for a browser to let you connect to a website that's not encrypted with all this stuff going on and just send your send all this data out over the web completely unprotected and then for the browser to act like everything is totally fine while that's happening is kind of crazy right mm. that's that's the world that we've been living in for 10 years your browser is just spraying your information all over the internet it's totally in the clear for anybody and the browser is just acting like everything's totally fine here mm. you know no problems Go ahead. Hey, it's all good. (laughs) Yeah, it's nuts. And, you know, I mentioned that I worked out from Mozilla before, and, you know, this drove us crazy, right? Like, Mm -hmm. we want to warn people about this stuff. It's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I think it's great that we're finally at a point where we can do that. The The other thing that's great about this stuff is we really need to incentivize people to move to HTTPS. And nothing incentivizes a site to turn on HTTPS faster than getting those warnings when people visit it. So it's a really important part of incentivizing websites that aren't using encryption to start using encryption. Yep. I, I know that um, some of the concerns previously around that kind of warning was that it was potentially penalizing the indie web or people who are little publishers are doing it for free and love and no money um, and then potentially having to go through that expensive and onerous process you described before to get their certificate and get it installed. Um, so it's, I think it's really exciting that Let's Encrypt is up and running and is making um, certificates freely available to any kind of content publisher now so that there, there really isn't that concern anymore that people would have to like, have a burden of, of cost or price in order to share things freely on the internet. Totally. I think there's a lot of people who are doing great work to help turn on HTTPS across the web, but I, I think it's probably fair to say that increasing these warnings would be very difficult for browsers to do if something like Let's Encrypt didn't exist, right? If the browsers couldn't say, it's easy, go ahead and turn it on. 
I think it would be very hard for them to put those warnings up. So yeah. um, I think that services like Let's Encrypt and some of the other stuff that people have been doing to make it easier these days is what's allowing browsers to ratchet up these warnings, and that's great. Mm -hmm. So um, can you tell us more about Let's Encrypt and what's going on with you guys? Like, is there anything new happening or any, any kind of um, stats or news you'd like to share about, about the organization? Sure. Well, we launched a little under two years ago. We've had pretty massive growth constantly since we launched. So right now, I think we're we're helping about fifty six million websites. Oh wow! That's a lot. That's a lot for under two years. So often we're just busy keeping up with <laughs> keeping up with the demands. You know, fifty six million websites is a big number, but it doesn't really means doesn't really mean much without context. Mm. The number that we really look at closely is what percentage of page loads on the web are encrypted, right? Mm. That's what really that's the number we really want to get up. And how many certificates we issue is a related number, but not the real issue, right? The question is how protected are people really? Yeah. So when when we started, about forty percent of page loads on the web were encrypted. Mm-hmm. And that's twenty years of progress. So you know, since since HTTPS was available, it took 20 years to get to 40% encrypted page loads. Since we launched two years ago, that number is now over 60%. So we've gone from 40 to over 60 in two years, when it took 20 years to go from zero to 40. That is huge. Yeah. I can't I can't think of any change that has any fundamental change to how the web works that has swept over that quickly. It's it's really rapid adoption and it's fantastic. It's protecting a massive amount of data. So that's the number that we watched the most and what we're the most proud of is helping get that number up up by 20% in just two years. Yeah. So at this pace we're adding, you know, over 10% per year. So if we keep keep it up and get pretty close to a hundred, I think in under five years. Yeah, that, we'll was, that was about to be my next question. So, yeah. It's like, how, how um, realistic do you think full encryption is and how far off do you reckon it could be? I think you'll get a lot of different answers depending mm-hmm. on who you ask. Um, I think rightfully there's a lot of pessimism about <laughs> how fast you can change the whole web. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has been very difficult, but I think we couldn't have any more promising numbers than we have right now. Mm-hmm. And there's incredible group of organizations and people spending a lot of time on this problem. So, yeah, I'm something of an optimist. I would say we can get pretty close to 100% in five years or less. I think you'll hear very reasonable answers that are longer than that, but I think five years or less is 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 possible if we can really stay focused and get people to switch. Mm. I think that's a great goal. That's such a, yeah. like that. Those really are impressive numbers. Um, I'm. I was just thinking like how long it took JavaScript to be adopted in a fairly like global way across the web, and I can tell you it was a lot more than two years. So, you're right. Like I can't think of any web technology that's gone from you know, like gone increased by that much across like global web traffic in such a short time. Um, yeah, thing I'd like to mention about how people might be able to switch easier is when you're looking for a web host, 
you know, sometimes you can find a place where you host a website and you do some of the administration yourself or on the other end of things, there are places where you can go, you know, sort of click and drag, build a website. When you're looking for a place to build a website, I really strongly recommend finding a place that offers HTTPS for free as part of, as part of the package, right? In this day and age, we know all the risks. We know how to solve the problem. There's no excuse for not offering HTTPS anymore. So if HTTPS seems like really daunting, like really difficult to set up, there are a lot of organizations out there that will do a lot of the work for you. Um, so that, that's how we get a lot of people to switch, right? It's not so much that, you know, millions of people are individually getting certificates from Let's Encrypt and figuring out how to install them on their servers. We work with a lot of big providers so that when you sign up for a blog or you sign up for a website, that provider will just provide encryption for you, often using Let's Encrypt and sometimes not. You know, from my point of view, if they use Let's Encrypt, great. If they don't, that's fine too. The important thing is that you find the provider who gives you HTTPS by default, you know, for free, no extra charges. That's just how it works. Yep. Yep. Just out of the box. Yep. So if people are interested to learn more about Let's Encrypt or maybe get a certificate for themselves, what would they do, Josh? Head over to our website, letsencrypt.org. And if you're looking to get a certificate, there's a big getting started button. Click that and you'll, you'll get some instructions for how to go down that path. And if you just want to learn about us, there is a blog. You can click on our blog and read some of the stuff we've published over the past couple of years. Um, there's documentation, there's other informational pages. So our website is really the best source of information. We're a not-for-profit, mm -hmm. so we have corporate sponsors, we have individual donors, grant makers, all really important sources of revenue for us. Mm. So one way that people can help is to donate. We, we always really appreciate that. Um, other ways that people can help include encouraging web, the websites that you use to switch to HTTPS if they haven't already. So if you're on a website that you like, you visit this every day and you notice it's not using HTTPS, send them an email, file a ticket, ask them why they're not using HTTPS in social media. Just let them know that, you, that you'd like them to switch. So that kind of advocacy is really important. Because we have some community forums where people come and ask questions about Let's Encrypt and when people are able to help other people set up HTTPS on our forums, it's great. If you know how to code, you can help with the software that runs Let's Encrypt. It's a little more of a specialized task, but if you know how to code, our software is open source and you're welcome to help out. Cool. So people can um, hop in and, and actually participate in the making of Let's Encrypt if they're, if they're um, into programming. Yeah, totally. Awesome. Hey, so, so Josh, um, when we're talking about encryption with the web, um, as I understand, there's actually two parts to it. There's like the part which is authentication or knowing who you're talking to, and then there's the encryption bit. Can you sort of unpack that for me a little bit for people who may be less familiar with these concepts? Yeah, so the goal is to set up a secure connection between you and the website that you're visiting. And the question here is what constitutes secure? And there's, there's two parts of that on the web. And on the web, these two parts are very intertwined. You can't have one without the other. So it's authentication and encryption. And encryption means scrambling the bits on the wire, right? This is the part where the message is turned into a secret message and sent across the wire. Mm -hmm. But, you know, 
I think as one clever Twitter user put it once, you can have an encrypted conversation with Satan if you want. Um, it doesn't, it, just because you're passing secret messages doesn't mean you're passing secret messages to back and forth with the right person. Mm-hmm. So you want to make sure that you're talking to the right website. So that's the authentication part. And certificates from CAs like Let's Encrypt, they're really actually the authentication layer. So a certificate from Let's Encrypt is how you know that you're talking to the right website. If they show you the certificate, you can determine from that certificate how to talk to this website in a secure way. And once you know that, then you can then you can use encryption. But you really need to know who you're talking to and have a secure conversation with that mm. and to, in order for the connection on the whole to be secure. Right. I think I've um, heard that there's two different kinds of certificates being used now. Like, could you explain a little bit about the difference between those two, like the SSL versus the TLS certificates? SSL and TLS are really the same thing. SSL is just an older word for it at some point. They decided to change from server socket layers, I think, to transport layer security. Mm-hmm. So they're really pretty interchangeable terms. The reason you still hear them both is because TLS these days is the technically correct term, but SSL is the term that everybody knows. It's the popularized term. Mm. So I tend to use TLS when I'm speaking to more technical people, and I use the term SSL when I'm speaking to less technical people. Uh, but they're, they're the same thing. There are different types of certificates, but all certificates are SSL or TLS. Right. So it's it's um, actually pretty much the same thing. It's just a different way of naming it. Yeah, and it's the name of the it's the name of the protocol that's being used to protect your data. So you're using the SSL or TLS protocol to to talk with a website. And there's an SSL or TLS certificate that allows you to set that up. There are different types of certificates, DV, OV, and EV. Um, I'm not sure if you want me to get into those today. Sure. Yeah, no, that's probably a little bit too, um, like, in the weeds for us. But um, I guess, like, the high-level question to ask about it is, like, should we care? Does it make any difference which kind we end up with? Or is it just more important that there is one to begin with? It's definitely most important that you have one. Sure. That's far more important than which one of the three that you have. Um, they all they all work equally well in terms of, you know, setting up a cryptographic connection and having a secure connection. They have some different properties. Um, but the important thing is that you get one. It's mm-hmm. far more and then worry about which one of the three you got. Sure. Cool. Well, Josh, I think we might wrap it up there. Um, thank you so much for chatting to me and to all of our listeners that bite into it. it- that was Laura Summers having an enlightening conversation there with uh, Josh Oos from Let's Encrypt. Thank you, Laura, for that. Uh, also, thank you tonight for to Amanda Durham for coming in uh, and t- talking to us earlier. Thank you for listening. Uh, we've been Bite Into It and we'll be back next Wednesday evening. Up next is the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. So stick around. Good night. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.